Amen. If you'll kindly remain standing to honor God's Word, which comes to us from Jeremiah chapter 31. I'll begin at verse 31. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer will they teach one another or say to one another, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I asked the choir this week if they would change the name of their anthem instead of I will build this church to I will remodel this church. I thought that was pretty clever, but no. It it didn't work lyrically, did it? Rhythmically, no. Okay. Hey, today we come to the end of our sermon series looking at the book of Jeremiah. For the past 11 weeks, we have preached and gathered in small groups and classes to dive deep into this ancient text. There have been many points along this journey when we have seen insight into God's character and wisdom. Not all points have been easy or comfortable, but through it all, we have been reminded of God's goodness, God's holiness. And I think We've also learned about ourselves. We've been reminded of the folly of self-reliance. This is so important because we live in a culture that prides itself on self-reliance. Self is center. Your thoughts, your feelings are the, are the determination of all that matters, we hear over and over again. The, the self is beautiful. The self is always smart. Jeremiah speaks of a much different way. Sometimes sermons err by telling you that here are three things you need to do to improve yourself or your life. Here's three helpful skills that you can take home with you to make things happier. And when that happens, those sermons miss the mark. It's another trip around this foolish enterprise called self-reliance. What you and I need... What we really need, and we need to be reminded each and every week, we need to be reminded of what God is like. What's his character? We need to leave the sanctuary saying, isn't Jesus beautiful? Let us pray. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be acceptable now in thy sight. Oh Lord, our our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. So I want to ask this question uh, as we begin to wrap up this sermon series this morning. I want to ask, what have we learned about God in this study? There are so many things, so many numerous things, but I want to focus on three. Um, Perhaps these are the ones that have been, I found, most personal and important to me. This is not an exhaustive list. This is not an exclusive list. But these are three things that I've really taken from diving deep into this book of Jeremiah. Uh, Three Ps. God is first personal. 
we have discovered that God is very, very personal. You remember back where we started the call of Jeremiah? We, we learned that this is a God that speaks to us, that engages us. Not all of us are called to be prophets, thankfully. What an incredible, difficult life Jeremiah had. But each of us is called upon personally to be a part of God's unfolding drama to save our world. We're all called to be witnesses to what he's doing, where this world is going. Remember what God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you. Do, you. do you hear the deeply intimate, personal way that God spoke to Jeremiah? This is God's character. This is not a, an aloof God that once every thousand years makes a, a distant declaration, but this is a God that personally, intimately knows us and wants to know us and speaks to our hearts and our situation. And it is all a form of grace. God formed you for a purpose. Remember what the Lord said, the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, Jeremiah said. Touched my mouth. The Lord said to me, now I have put my words into your mouth. This is an engaged God, a very personal God. We have seen God and Jeremiah speak to each other back and forth in this book. Sometimes it's been a little bit shocking because sometimes Jeremiah has called out this God and said, why are you doing this? How come this is happening? I do not understand your ways. And then God responds and God absorbs Jeremiah's. And it's like, it's like a married couple that is trying to figure this out and there is back and forth. And it tells us about God's character. At no point does God say, how dare you talk to me that way? At no point does God say, I don't like the fact that you're questioning or you're speaking to me. I'm too holy. No. This is a God that engages and wants to know us. He is so personal. He refers to himself as the husband to his people. There's nothing more intimate than that. Think about this. We're about to go into the season of life of the church where we're going to hear this phrase, Emmanuel, over and over again, Advent. God with us, the Almighty, the Eternal, the Holy One. And then there's this crucial preposition, with, God with, and then us, you and me, the whole human family. Not the, a God above us, not the God apart from us, but God with us. We have seen that over and over and over again in the book of Jeremiah. Now, the, the truth is, most of us would, I think, rather have one of two different options or preferences uh, we would prefer instead of a God with us. Some want a God so completely transcendent that he's forgotten about us and he's just kind of let us do our own thing. There's a God, but boy, he, he doesn't really engage with us. Or we would prefer a God that was so incredibly imminent and so much a part of us that we become gods ourselves. Well, we all have a little light inside of us. We're all divine. We're all special and wonderful. Society tends to kind of vacillate between the two. We, sometimes it's like a pendulum. Um, these are heresies. For a while, we wanted a God who set everything in motion and let it alone. But it seems like in today's world, now it's more like the self is the center of the divine in each and every single one of us. And that means that I can do my own thing and do my own way because how dare you question me because I am close to divine. 
neither of these positions will be attracted to the one who says he's come to be with us, to engage with us. I have loved seeing Jeremiah walk with, engage with, question, struggle, be embraced by, sustained by this God. His days, his nights, his mornings were immersed in God. Immersed. He didn't go a day without hearing from, speaking on behalf of, questioning God. It was the way to live. Jeremiah is a wonderful model, but it's all because we see a God who chooses to engage us in the personal, wonderful way. The second thing we have learned as we've gone through this book is that God makes promises. He's personal and He also promises. Over and over again, He keeps making promises. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the promise He made to that strange community, the Rechabites. God promises that because of your faithfulness to your forefather, because of the way you all live, there will always be a Rechabite standing in my service. And if we keep reading the Bible in Nehemiah, we discover that a Rechabite is standing in the service of the Lord. Promise made by God, promise kept. Last week we talked about Ebed Melech and how he saved Jeremiah, this outsider, and God says, you will not succumb to the, the Babylonian invasion. You will live, Ebed Melech. And God once again makes a promise. God keeps a promise. We have seen through the book of Jeremiah that there was a promise made to David long, long ago that your king, Lerain, will continue. And we have read about how the Davidic line continues. God keeps making promises and he keeps them over and over again. And then we read how God's people were sent into exile and God promises, 70 years, then you will come home. This is wonderful because, again, he keeps his promise, they do come home. This is really important because you and I both know we live in a world where promises are made. A lot of promises are made. And all of us have been hurt, damaged by promises broken. God does not break promises. But He keeps making them over and over again. And that brings us to our text, this amazing text in chapter 31. We see this grand promise given to the people, the people in exile. God says, I'm going to make a promise to you, a new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'll put my law within them. They'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach one another or say to one another, know the Lord. They'll all know me. From the least to the greatest, says the Lord. And then the Lord says, I will make a promise to forgive their sins. And he takes it another step. And I will remember them no more. God says, I'm going to forget about it. Forget their sins. Now, as far as promises go, this one's a little over the top, isn't it? Really? Every single person, young and old, is going to know God intimately? That's a big, big promise. A big covenant. The the claims are exuberant. Sins will be forgotten. What's going on here? What's going on here is that God not only sees the yearnings of the Hebrews' hearts 
to someday come out of exile in Babylon. But God is also speaking to you and me. The truth is, every single one of us is living in exile. We are. We have been participants in a world that we were not made for. It's not our home. Oh, for a brief moment or two with Adam and Eve, everything was just fine. They were kicked out. Forever life was broken. But, but something remained. Something remained on Adam's heart and Eve's heart. And it was given to you and me as well. There's a, there's a remembrance of what it was. And a deep longing and yearning for what was. That hasn't gone away. We all know it's not right. We all know that things are broken. And this is not what it is. And God speaks to that. And he makes a promise to each and every one of us. You know, so much of the Bible is written about a people who are away from home. It's a story of, of people who are not where they want to be. Isaiah wrote, about, wrote to a people who were in exile. Israel, in slavery in Egypt, held captive in a foreign land, exiled, later brought to a new home. Um, Israel and Hebrews in Babylon had to be brought back to their home. But even when they do come home, the Romans come and occupied the land, so they weren't home then. The story of Israel is a small version of the story of the whole human race. Adam and Eve lost their home, and we've all been trying desperately to get back to it. And then we read at the end of the book, at the end of the New Testament, God recreates that garden. The garden, the city of God coming down out of heaven. And every yearning heart will be fulfilled. Everyone knowing that this isn't right will see now that's what we were made for. That's what is the thing I've been yearning for. And you remember what Jesus said. I am going away to what? Prepare a place for you where? In my Father's house. Wow, that's good news. That is such good news news. This is the new covenant, and it is a free gift of God. Now, I just read this covenant. I mean, I just, you know, God's going to have, everyone's going to know him. Sins are going to be forgiven. Um, it, it's amazing. It's too good to be true, and that's the problem. I have a hard time believing it, it's too good. I, I mean, I, where's that page? I, let me open it up again. It has to be in there. It has to say something more. I mean, it really does. It has to say, I will forgive their sins. They'll all be my people. But you better clean up your life and do everything you're supposed to be doing and do it right. Or I'm, I'm going to cancel the whole thing. Right? That has to be in there, right? You, you know, you better impress me because I'm doing a lot here. I don't know about you, but I fall back into that almost every day. I, I keep falling into it. Yes, but. I mean, I understand the God's free gift of, but I must have to get right before he would. That's the challenge. It is too good to be true, and it boggles the mind. It's the free gift of God. 
Harvey Pennock was a golf pro whose biggest success came when he was quite elderly, very, very late in his life. He's known for his, quote, little books on golf. In reality, he never really wrote down anything with the intention of making any money. In the 1920s, he purchased a red spiral notebook at which he recorded his observations on golf. He kept the notebook for for decades. He just would scribble things down in it. In 1991, he showed his notebook to a writer and asked if he thought it was worth anything. The writer told Harvey that he thought it could be published and agreed to help him find a publisher. A short time later, the man sent Harvey a letter telling him that Simon & Schuster had agreed to an advance of $90,000. The next time the two met, Harvey was troubled. He told his writer friend that with all of his medical bills, there was no way he could advance the publishing house that much money. (laughs) And the writer had to explain that Harvey didn't have to pay anything. He would be receiving $90,000. You know, that book sold over a million copies. That's my struggle. It was the Hebrew struggle. It's the challenge we all face. I must have to earn it on some level. I must have to pay something. This is God's character. He makes outrageous promises and covenants and says, all I want you to do is be my people. Let me live with you. Let me forgive you. Let me walk with you. You don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to carry that burden through life, thinking I'm not good enough. I'm outside of that mercy. See, this is right here in Jeremiah. We read through Jeremiah, and we've had this sometimes during this series, and small groups, people said to me, oh, this book is so hard. Well, take these verses out and look at them and say, wow, what kind of a God is this? He just gives. His grace is free. It's overwhelming, it's stunning, it's shocking. He has established a new covenant. And Jesus reiterated and said, one day, what's coming is one day, every knee is going to bow. Every knee is going to bow in front of Jesus. That day is coming. You see, when the Hebrews were in Babylon, they received a promise that said, in 70 years you get to go home. Do you not think that that shaped and formed the people a bit? Hey, 50 more years, we get to go home. I mean, it's something that forms a community. But the church gets formed by this promise that says, someday we get to go home. And our lives become formed by that promise, shaped by it. We begin to live into that promise. Finally, God in this book, I have found him to be persistent. It's a word we have seen. He's, he's personal. He makes promises. But he's also persistent. You know, remember back earlier, we, we were talking about how Jeremiah got up every morning and the Hebrew word there was, he was persistent. He got up and he listened to God's word and he preached God's word. He was persistent. But remember, God got up with him every morning. God was persistent. It's not a one-time thing. 
we wander off, he goes looking for us persistently. He loves us. When Jesus walked this earth, we saw what God was like. If we we read Jeremiah the wrong way, we could get the impression that God wants nothing to do with sinners. He wants to retreat and turn away from them. But what we discover when we see Jesus is that God loves the Hebrew people. And who did Jesus spend time with? Sinners. That was the big charge against him. Why is he having dinner with sinners? He desperately wants them to experience the joy of knowing and receiving his grace and living by his law. He wants them to be happy and fulfilled. He's so persistent in this. If we walk away, he's going to come after us. I mean, think about in the book of Jeremiah how persistent he was. The Hebrew people were terrible. I mean, they kept turning their backs. I mean, hundreds of years, and God just kept coming and sending prophets saying, please, please, come back, come back, come back, come back, come back. God is relentless in his pursuit of us. John Muir, in his book, Summer in the Sierra, tells of an occasion when he was working with a group of shepherds, and they were trying to take 300 or so sheep to a better grazing land, and they needed to get them to cross the Yosemite Creek. These shepherds with all the sheep, and they had to get them across this creek. And the point where they were trying to get the sheep to cross was about two miles upstream from where it becomes a waterfall, and it was about 10 yards wide, about four feet deep, and the water was moving about three miles per hour, so it was relatively calm, and it was pretty easy to cross at that point. And now the shepherds tried all kinds of creative approaches to get these sheep to cross this 10-yard stream. First, the shepherd tried to shove a bunch of them into the water, because if you can get one to cross, usually the rest will follow. So they pushed some in, well, they just swam right back. Then the shepherds took a little lamb. He took it away from his mother, carried it across to the other side, and he tied it to a bush. He thought that the mother would surely cross and want to be next to uh, the little lamb. Um, but that didn't work. The lamb started to cry. And the mother returned, but did not cross the stream. Finally, in desperation, the shepherd shoved a dozen or so into the stream. He took a big one, grabbed it, dragged it across the stream. He figured if he could get an adult sheep over there, the rest would soon follow. No sooner had he gotten over and let the sheep go. You know what it did? It swam all the way back to where it was in the first place. Do you see the persistence here? Do you see the persistent yearning and want and effort of the shepherd to get the sheep across. And where was he trying to take them? To a better grazing area. But they were afraid. They wouldn't go. But a good shepherd keeps at it. Friends, we are often so like that. God comes to us and comes to us and says, you need to trust me. I have better grazing land here And I will drag and pull and do whatever I can. I will send my prophets. I will send them and send them and send them. I will do whatever it takes to get you because I need you to come home. And then finally, God sends his son. And he lays over that stream with his own life. So there be a way to cross over. 
It cost him his life. This is the persistent love of God. Persistent. Today is Christ the King Sunday, and we remember Jesus came as a king who rules over all. He is enthroned as the Lamb of God over all people, all rulers and all nations. He is king over all kings and Lord over all lords. That's what we say today. And there's good news. Because this king is personal. He makes promises. And he's going to keep after us. He's going to be persistent. Maybe now we're ready I pray we're ready. I pray we are ready for the Advent season that starts next Sunday. In that season, we're going to sing these words. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of His heaven. No ear may hear His coming, but in this world of sin where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Let us pray. Father, we are awed and humbled by your holiness, your goodness. We see in this book of Jeremiah how you keep promises and how you love us and how you're so passionate to bring us home. Father, help us to believe such wonderful news is true and help our lives to be oriented and wrapped around that promise of what you have in store for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.